Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. You may be seated. Thank you. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we are so grateful that we can gather together, that we can worship you, that we can celebrate the truth of the gospel, that we can explore who you are. Wherever people are coming from and wherever they're at in this moment today, I ask that for all of us, Lord, you would draw us near to you, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would give us hearts to believe, and that, Lord, through all of that seeing and hearing and believing, that the work of our hands would produce um, just glory for you. Everything that we do, everywhere we go, every life that we get involved with, I pray that you'd be glorified through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, The first time that I ever had somebody invite me to an evangelistic youth outreach, uh, it was before I was a Christian, they invited me to this evangelistic youth outreach, and they told me that it would be a non-confrontational presentation of the gospel. And I'm sure that's what their leaders told them to say to people they were inviting. (laughs) This will be a non-confrontational presentation of the gospel. And, and I didn't know what the gospel was, so I thought, how do I say no to this immediately? And uh, the way that I said no, I had a few other thoughts too. One of those thoughts was, if someone tells me that something is non-confrontational, it's 100% going to be confrontational. <laughs> right? If they're trying to soften the blow already, it's going to be confrontational. The other thing is, if this is supposed to be a new way of living, and it's supposed to actually change the way I think about the world, my guess is it probably should confront the way that I'm currently living. So there's a kind of an odd dichotomy that I was presented with. And so I said no and um, closed the door to my roommate's friend who had come and knocked on the door and invited me to go. And, and later on, he, he married that roommate. And as it, as it so happens, um, the reason that I met my wife was because of that person who showed up at my door <laughs> and invited me to that because I ended up going to church with them about a month later. She was onto something in terms of the invitation. When I, when I go to the medical doctor... I'm not looking for a non-confrontational presentation of my medical facts, the the state of my health. I'm looking for the facts, I'm looking for the content of the state of my health, and then I'm looking for what I should do by way of plan as it relates to what they have figured out there. It's a very interesting kind of dichotomy, I think, that we live in sometimes, where we think something that is about to completely change your life might not be confrontational. It's an odd way to come forward with the gospel. And when I say the gospel to you, I say the word gospel, what does that mean? What does it mean to you when I say gospel? Some of you who've grown up in the church, you know, maybe you've been around for a while as as a follower of Jesus and and in the church, you've heard the word gospel because you know that there are four gospels. They're the life and ministry of Jesus through four different authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Others of you may not be familiar with the Bible. You may have heard the word gospel in different kinds of contexts. The point is, the word gospel is used over 70 times in the New Testament of our Bible, and so I think we should know what it means. And I've been pastoring long enough to know that I've sat down with many people and said, what is the gospel? And they look at me like a deer in the headlights. They're like, that's a word I know. That's a word I know. That's a word I know. How do I define that? And so all I want to do today is talk about the gospel. 
The word gospel just means good news. Simple. The word gospel as it's used in the Bible can mean both the active proclamation of a message and also the content proclaimed. So the word gospel as it's used in the Bible can mean the active proclamation of the message and the content being proclaimed. We have both senses of that in the beginning couple of verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we looked at last week. Sam did a wonderful job walking us through those verses. I'm going to read them to you and just refresh your memory on what they said. It says, now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Where it says in that text, and you can see it, where it says the gospel I preached to you, you could read that as the gospel I gospeled to you. It is the proclamation of the message itself. So if the gospel is the content that is being proclaimed, then the question we have to ask is, what is that content? Because Paul, who's writing this letter to the church in Corinth, just like the rest of scripture, he seems when he talks about the gospel to focus on Jesus. The gospel is centered on Jesus and what God has done through him. So Paul is saying it's the good news, because gospel means good news. It's the good news that Paul had already told them. It is the good news that they had received. It is the good news that is sustaining them, and it is the good news that is saving them. So he's reminding them of the gospel he told them, the gospel they received, the gospel that they are standing on, that is sustaining them as Christians, and it is the gospel that is saving them. And this, of course, is a big deal. What is this gospel? What is the content of the message that is doing all of those things? What is the content of the message that Paul brought to them, that they received, that they are standing on, that is sustaining them as Christians, and that is saving them? We have to look at the content of the message, and that is what I want to look at today. We're going to talk about the gospel. Three points. Because we all know Jesus loves three points. I don't think Jesus preached a three-point sermon, but I like it. It's good for my pea-sized brain to be able to track like this. We're going to talk about the gospel, what it is, what it does, and what to do about it. What it is, what it does, and what to do about it. First, we'll talk about what it is. Look at our text, verses 3 through 5. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas then to the 12. He says this is the primary message, the message of first importance. The good news of the gospel that he has passed on to them is the same as the good news of the gospel that he himself received. It is the message he has received and he is now passing on. And I need you to see that he is not innovating here. Paul is not an innovator. This was a message, or even you could say a creed, like a formal statement of belief that had become the essence of what the church understood the work of Jesus to be. What he had done for the world. It was the way that the church had been talking about it. Paul's writing this, say, 30 years, 25, 30 years after Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. And they've already got a way of talking about this that has been passed along to Paul. 
And Paul, who has encountered Jesus, is being faithful then to pass on this message that has already transformed his life. And here's the message. First, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Second, that he was buried. Third, that Christ was raised in accordance with the scriptures. And fourth, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So the content that, the, that Paul is gospeling to them is that Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, and Christ appeared to them alive. This is the essence of the content of the gospel he is communicating to them. And like I said, this is not just Paul's gospel. Paul wrote a number of letters in the New Testament. This is not unique to him. If you distill the scriptural teaching of the gospel from the gospels themselves, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you look at the life and teaching of Jesus, you will come up with this gospel. And then when you read the rest of the New Testament, you will see that Paul is not alone in his presentation of the content of the gospel being like this. He passes this along because it is what he has received. It is what the rest of the New Testament authors write as well. And if you really want to do some work, you can begin in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, and you can read all the way through to the last book of the Bible in Revelation. And what you will find is that there is only one cohesive story being told all the way through. There is one gospel And there are multiple ways to present it, to communicate it. And I want you to notice something else. When Paul was reminding them of the gospel that he had delivered, that they had received, he did not just give them some doctrinal principles to believe, though I'm quite high on doctrinal principles. So was Paul. But that's not all that he gave them when he told them that they needed to believe something. They needed to be reminded of something. When he's reminding them of the good news that they've received, he lays out four key elements of the life of Jesus. I want you to see it like this. What I want you to see is that being part of the people of God, being part of God's people, the church, means that you are part of a different story. And that different story revolves around the life and the ministry of Jesus. This new story that he has been telling to the Corinthians starts with God eternally existing before creation. It ends with God remaking the whole world in an eternal new creation. But the center of the story, the high point of the story, the crescendo of the story is the incarnation and life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is saying the only story, this is like, this is the way that Paul lived his life. He's saying the only story that I will orient my life around is the story of Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, buried, risen, reigning, and triumphant as the Lord over all things. The new story that he has believed and he has passed on transforms everything about all of our lives. This is one of my favorite quotes, Alistair McIntyre. You've been around Christ City for a while, you've heard this quote. I can only understand the question of what I am to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart. I only know how to live my life and what to do with it once I understand and identify the story I'm participating in. It's vital that we comprehend this. When Paul's reminding the Corinthians of the gospel that he's preached to them, he is reminding them of the story of Jesus and how the story of Jesus is what changes everything. It's the controlling center of all of their ethics, the way of being that they have. 
It's the answer to all the questions they've been asking. Paul's writing this letter back to them because they asked him a whole bunch of questions. He's responding to it. And the answers that he is giving them through all the way through 1 Corinthians have at the very center the crucified and risen Jesus. Andy Nassali said the gospel solves every issue Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians because the gospel and its presuppositions and consequences is decisive for every issue regarding how Christians should live. This gospel. Paul's insisting that the church of God in Corinth be careful not to drift off into a different story. He's saying this is the story of first importance. That means it is the most important. This is what we need to hold on to. This is what Sam said last week when he was preaching. He was talking about the key to the code, the thing that unlocks everything else. It's the cryptographic cipher. You need to have a key to understand everything else that's going on. And he says the gospel is that key that helps you understand everything that is in life. It's the thing that makes everything else make sense. If you want to understand the entirety of the Bible, you cannot possibly understand it apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ being at the very center. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, and and you're like, I mean, and you would never say this out loud, especially when you're together with us. I get that. I was also not a follower of Jesus at one point. And you're sitting here going, what is with these people? Like just gently, you're thinking, what is with these people? There's an oddity going on here. And I just want to tell you, we know. Like this is not a secret to us. It's okay that you think that. I thought that. I still think that. We're different. There's something going on. I just want you to know, this gospel is the point of origin for all of our weirdness. It's the center of the whole thing. We believe this and this has changed us. We believe God so loved all people in all places at all times that he made a way for us to enter into relationship with him. That's what we believe. Every question you have about Christianity will in some way relate back to the reality that Jesus Christ lived, that he literally died upon the cross for our sin, that he was literally dead, which means they took him down from the cross and buried him, And that on the third day, he literally was resurrected. He rose from death. And that he then literally walked around appearing to his disciples, first the 12, and as many as 500 gathered at one time over a period of weeks following his resurrection. He just continued to appear to people. We literally believe that. When he's appearing to people, There's an authentication to the resurrection. He is risen and alive. He's different, but he's here. There's appearances because he is risen in a new order of life. And he's risen because he actually died. And where he died was upon the cross for our sin. This is the most consequential thing in all the universe. I'll tell you. I feel inferior to stand up and tell you this. I I looked at this text on Monday morning. I knew I was preaching it for a while, but I looked at it on Monday morning and I just trembled. I thought, how will I ever preach a sermon about this? I can't encapsulate that. This church doesn't give me enough minutes to teach the goodness of this text. I, I, I don't know how I will ever accomplish the goal I have in mind. 
See, it's been my goal since the moment I started following Jesus to, like Paul, pass on the message that has transformed me. It's just so good. I just eventually sat back and said, okay, well, I won't be able to do it. So that's fine. I've decided that, and I guess I'll just go do it. But I'll never live up to what I want it to be because the gospel is so majestic, so beautiful, so comprehensive that there is no way I could communicate it to you on one Sunday. I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to do it. I will fail, and then I will spend eternity with God reveling in the goodness of it. This is the gospel. To tell the story of the gospel is to invite other people to find their place in it. And that's what I'm doing here. I want you to find your place in life, in this story of Jesus. That's what Paul's been doing all the way through 1 Corinthians. He's teaching them to live into the gospel. Richard Bauckham said, to accept the authority of this story is to enter into it and to inhabit it. It is to live in the world as the world is portrayed in this story. See, for Paul, the gospel is the announcement of the good news of the story of Jesus, looking at the key elements of what he has accomplished, announcing the story of Jesus then as the good news of salvation. And if you keep reading in 1 Corinthians 15, you're going to see that the resurrection of Jesus has a lot of implications for the way that we live our lives. And in fact, it has like an end times implication for the way that we consider ourselves. It's the theological word eschatological. There's eschatological implications for what we think about the resurrection of Jesus. There's personal and there's corporate and there's cosmic implications because of the gospel. And through the incarnation and the life and the resurrection, the the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, God is rescuing us from judgment for sin. He is bringing us into fellowship with him and then he is restoring creation in such a way that we will enjoy our new life with him forever. It's, It's tough to fit that into a sermon. And to Paul, this is everything and it's been everything to every faithful believer ever since. This is the gospel he preached to them. I just want you to know the gospel is not predominantly a way of life. It's news that's been delivered to us. The gospel is not like deep thoughts about God. It's the simplicity of the beauty of the salvation we have in Christ. The, The gospel is not good advice. It's not. There's lots of good advice in the Bible, but the gospel is good news. It is this, it is telling what has been accomplished. It isn't something we do. It's something that has been done. And to that we respond. It's not something we do. It's something that has been done by Jesus. And we respond to that in the way that we live our lives. The gospel demands a response. And at the risk of sounding overly simplistic, it's a binary response of sorts. You can hear the gospel and you can turn away from it and discard it and go, I'm not interested. Or you can hear the gospel of Jesus and you can believe. And you can be utterly transformed by it. It is news that will change you. And it does not just change you the moment you first believe, but it is the gospel that we believe into for the continued transformation as followers of Jesus. The gospel is the most relevant message that has ever been proclaimed and we should never stop. That's the gospel. That's what it is. What it is. Secondly, what it does. The gospel does demand this response of our life. And in the right response is nothing short of a complete reordering and recentering of our entire identity around the person and work of Jesus. You go, how do I do that? I'll tell you. 
slowly and it'll take you the rest of your life. It's no problem. The older and grayer the person in the room, chances are they've learned something. We should maybe pay attention. I say that now with this much gray in my beard. Anytime you start to live by a story other than the story of the gospel of Jesus, anytime another ideology starts to infiltrate your heart and your mind, you're going to dethrone Jesus and you're going to enthrone something else. I need you to see that. He is king. He is on the throne. And anytime you allow another story to impact the story of the gospel and your transformation of it, you are dethroning Jesus and you are enthroning something or someone else. means you're going to live by some other authoritative story. See, we live in contested space. Contested space. The space that we inhabit in this world is contested with different ideologies and religious worldviews. And we need to be aware that there are other competing stories in our city, and we need to be reminded why it is essential that we are living into the story of the gospel as the defining story in our lives. If we're going to see beyond what the gospel is and, and really start to see what it does and why all that matters, we're going to need to see that these competing stories in our lives are vying for our attention. And we need to see why it is essential that we're living out of the story of the gospel and into the story of the gospel as that foundational defining story of our existence. And there's lots of foundational stories that you could talk about uh, for people to live out of. I've shared some of this before. Steve Wilkins and Mark Sanford have got a book that looks at some of these competing stories. I want to give you just seven of them that they highlight in that book because I think they're very helpful for us. The first one is individualism. Individualism becomes a story that we can live by. It's the story that I'm the center of the universe, isn't it? Individualism says I am the highest authority and I will not submit to anything or anyone else, which really falls apart as soon as you have to go through security at the airport. Okay, I've said this. Individualism falls apart very quickly. I just think it's, a, it's too weighty of a responsibility to put on our own shoulders. It's difficult to think about. Second one, consumerism. Consumerism is the story that I am what I own. Therefore, if you own much, you feel good about yourself. If you own little, you may not. But consumerism functions as a story in our world. Moral relativism. That's the story that we can't know what is universally good. That there is no universal good. So you know what happens? I have to define what's good. And I am the one who will tell you what is good or right or wrong. Moral relativism says, yeah, sure, there is a morality to the universe, but we can't say that it's widely applicable. So it's relativistic. and We need to decide for ourselves how we will live according to our own thoughts. Again, we are at the center, aren't we? Scientific naturalism is a story that says all that matters is matter. And there's nothing beyond what we can see and touch, which I think, again, if I can come back to it, is the reality that I only see the world through my eyes and I only touch what my fingers can touch. Therefore, I am the arbiter of truth and the interpreter of all things. And so if I can't see it, it must not be real. Scientific naturalism. Another one we just call New Age. The story that we ourselves are gods and are at the very center of our spirituality. And though there be many people in our city who would not say they are following a new age spirituality, in practice they are because they are the ones who are saying, I'll take a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Christianity, because I like Jesus, I didn't like anybody else, but Jesus was cool. All right, I'll take a little bit of Hinduism, 
I'll take a little bit of whatever, the, and then I'll blend it all together and it'll be my own. Again, I'm the center of that story. It works for me. Yeah, whatever works for you. No, it's a false story that you have to be aware of because what happens is that trickles into your Christianity and you start taking parts of the book that you don't like and cutting them out. I don't have enough time to tell you what I think about that, so keep going. Postmodern tribalism is another story they highlight. It's a story that all that matters is what my small group thinks and guess who decides who's in or out of my small group? Mm, that's me. Me and those four keyboard warriors online, that's our group and we know. We know how it is. Postmodern tribalism, we can do this. We say who's on our team and who isn't on our team. We also have then the, the, the final one I'll share with you, salvation by therapy. That's the story that I can come to my full human potential through inner exploration. Okay? I personally uh, benefited greatly from therapy. We run a counseling ministry in our church. We're not anti-counseling. The point is, you receiving counseling will not save you. Finding out who you truly are will not save you. If one more of you send me the Enneagram to figure out my personality type or tell me what my number is, I don't care. I don't care. It's, I've done lots of those tests. I know my personality. Somewhat abrasive. Good thing I got saved. Let's just say it that way. It's fine. It's going to be just fine. You will not find salvation by taking another online test to tell you your personality. You won't. There's more. This is a sample. We're prone to making ourselves the center of our own story. And that seems like a lot of weight and responsibility to bear. And I just think people in our city, I think even people who are sitting here right now, are craving a new story to be a part of. You know it's not working. That's one of my favorite questions talking with folks who maybe don't agree with me on what I think about Jesus. I just go, they'll tell me what they believe and I'll just go, how's that working for you? I think we as human beings want to know how to live and what to do and the gospel opens a way for us to do that. We want a fresh start. We want a renewed life. We want a reason to exist. But if we want true renewal in our lives, I'm telling you, it starts and ends with Jesus. He is Lord. He is creator. He knows. He's the Savior. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, a new has come. My gosh, our world craves for the new. Jesus renews your person and then he renews your purpose, but he does it all through the gospel. But if you try and recreate your story apart from him, if you try and recreate your image or power or relationships in your own strength apart from him, these things will be fine, but they will never fulfill you. There will always be an emptiness attached to them that you know. A recreated identity and a recreated calling can only come properly from God. I want to show you how this happens. We need to see that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to the disciples to teach and commission them. Let's walk through this. First, Christ died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And you go, why did he have to die? Why? That's the first question. When I 
I'm looking at this text, I think, well, then why did he have to die? He died for our sins. Great. Why? Because God loves us and he chose to save us. And because God loves us and he chose to save us, and because of God's holiness and justice in his nature and character, because of that, there needed to be judgment for sin. It's important that you recognize we serve a God of love, but a God who is holy. Holy. Your sin would have stopped you, apart from Christ, from ever having a life-giving relationship with God. Your sin made you an enemy of God. You could not solve that problem on your own. And because we were at war with God and we needed a way to have peace, Jesus died for our sin. David Pryor said, there is no true proclamation of the gospel which does not explain in New Testament terms the link between human sin and the death of Christ. If you have a bloodless gospel, you have another gospel that is false. He had to die so that we could come home. It was the, it says in Acts 2, we're going to see this later, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that Jesus would be crucified and punished for your sin and mine and that through his atoning work on the cross, that through that we could have salvation and peace. If you don't have that, you don't have a gospel. That peace comes through the work of Jesus on the the cross where Christ died for our sins. If you keep going in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you keep going and you skip to verse 21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel's focused on who Jesus is and what he said and did because Jesus is the hero of history. He's the centerpiece of the whole Bible. See, we, rightly understood, and I love you very much, are, we're, we're the villains in the story. You're not the hero of the biblical story. I, I hate to break it to you. I know your whole life you've been told you're really wonderful, but you're not the hero of this story. In this story, Brett Landry is the villain. That's, that's who I am in the biblical story. If we don't understand that, I don't think we can enter into this. But because of the gospel, villains are turned into adopted sons and daughters of the king. (laughs) Jesus lovingly came into human history, born of a virgin, born as a man who lived without sin, though he was tempted in every way as we are. And because of his great love for us, he went to the cross and he took on the punishment of death that we deserved. See, Christ died for our sins. Our first parents in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. When they sinned, when they disobeyed God's good commandment in the Garden, God gave them a good commandment that was for their good, and they rejected it, and they rebelled against him. And what they did was they substituted themselves for God. They said, we reject your authority, and we affirm our authority. We are pushing you to the side and doing what we want. That is called sin. And at the cross... Jesus reversed that substitution by substituting himself for sinners. When Jesus went to the cross, he willingly took on 
upon himself the sin of all who would ever come to trust in him. That means that if you trust in him as your Lord and Savior, Jesus went to the cross and took upon himself all of your sin, past, present, and future. And that he died in your place, atoning for your sin and purchasing your salvation. John Stott said the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. When it says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, it means the whole of the Old Testament was pointing forward to this ultimate substitutionary sacrifice that would make a way for human beings to have peace with God now and forevermore. According to the scriptures, he died. According to the promises to fulfill what the scriptures had said about him. This death for sin happened on the cross. John Stott again said, We are obliged to conclude that the cross was a substitutionary sacrifice. Christ died for us. Christ died instead of us. The possibility of substitution rests on the identity of the substitute. You've got to understand it was the sinless who died for the sinner. It was the innocent who died for the guilty. It was the perfect who died for the flawed and broken. And it was his pleasure to do so. Jesus not only took on the punishment for your sin, but he also lived a perfectly righteous life. So when you trust in Christ, your sins are forgiven and you are declared righteous by God, who is the ultimate judge. The righteousness of Christ is then attributed to you as if you had lived a perfect life. He takes your sin, he gifts you his righteousness. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made Jesus. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what my favorite 16th century Protestant reformer Martin Luther called the great exchange. It's the great exchange. You can never heard a better deal than this. You, in all your shame and guilt, feeling the full weight of that, gift all of that to Jesus. And he says, thank you. And in exchange, he gifts you his righteousness. Come on. This is good news. Luther said, learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You have become what you were not so that I might become what I was not. This is a radical truth that the God of all creation, the one to whom every ounce of worship and glory belongs, that he entered into our mess once and for all to save us from the penalty of sin, to renew our hearts and to reconcile us to the Father. Our sin for his righteousness, it's the great exchange. He died for our sins. He was buried. There's a finality to that. He was dead. He was dead. He bled out. He was buried. And he was raised on the third day and he appeared to the disciples. Look at the text again. It says in verse 3, 4, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Hey, we're going to spend the next, uh, the better part of the next couple of months talking about the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. So I'm holding back today. Yeah, I'm ready to go. But I'm holding back today on the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. Just read 1 Corinthians 15. You should just read it a few times over the next week or so and just look at all the implications of the resurrection and what that means for us. But I do want to say his appearance to the disciples and then to the crowd of 500 and then to his brother James, Jesus' brother James, and then eventually to Paul, that authenticates his resurrection, which authenticates his literal death, which authenticates what he accomplished for us on the cross. It's important that we see this. And when Paul's writing this, you need to remember, it's like 25 years or so after Jesus' death, probably something like that. And when he says that most of these witnesses in that crowd of 500 are still alive, he's saying, go ask them about it. If you want to, you can go talk to them. Like, imagine for a second that, and and John Breyers gave me this, but I'm only giving him credit in the first gathering. He said, imagine, imagine 9-11 wasn't filmed. Imagine the terrorists flying planes into the Twin Towers wasn't filmed. Imagine we hadn't all seen that. I say that, you know exactly. You see it in your mind. Imagine you'd never seen it. You'd only heard about it. And you're like, I don't know if that really happened. It sounds like a really good excuse to go to war. Maybe they made it up. Maybe they just demolished some buildings. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure. It's like 22 and a half years ago. There's lots of people alive who lived through it, who saw the horror of it. Just go ask them. That's what he's saying. Hey, this is the most significant event of our generation. Just go ask them. They're still alive. You can talk to them. They saw Jesus. There's like 500 of them at one time. And he showed up and he was teaching them, commissioning them, telling them about the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. Go talk to them. The gospel, what it is, what it does. Third, what do you do about it? What do you do? Let me take you to Acts chapter 2. Peter's standing up on the day of Pentecost. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And Peter's preaching this sermon to a crowd of people in Jerusalem just weeks after Jesus had been crucified and he is announcing the good news of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. He is preaching to them a new story. It's the continuation of a story that the children of Israel had known for a long time, but he's showing how Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise of all the, all the promises that were in that story. And he says there's a new way to live. God had written this story from eternity past, and he's telling them what had happened in Christ. Peter is delivering to them good news. He's preaching the gospel to this crowd, and he's using the same categories that Paul would one day later receive. And that Paul would one day later pass on as he went from city to city preaching the gospel. He's saying Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was risen from the grave. And he appeared 
And he keeps going in verse 36, Acts chapter 2. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then look at the response of the crowd. I want you to see this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners and gives them a new story to live by. The people who first heard this news of the gospel being proclaimed, they knew that it demanded a response, and so they said, what shall we do? The news of the gospel demands a response today the same as it did then. It demands a response from all who hear. It is not a one-time response, but a daily response. It begins with a first response, and then it continues on the rest of your days. And it is a binary response of sorts. You can hear the gospel, this good news of salvation offered to you in Christ, and you can turn away and discard it. Or you can hear the gospel and believe and be continually transformed by it. Would you stand as we respond today?